1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 12 to 19 this morning. I've titled the message, The Purifying Fire of Christian Suffering. This is a theme that we've seen throughout uh, the letter, but I think this is the most specific that Peter is going to get about in, in terms of addressing suffering and why we suffer and how to suffer and what the purpose of suffering is. This, this is really what this letter was written for. Again, remember, this is a letter written to a church, several churches, in fact, throughout uh, modern-day Turkey, who are at this day in the first century part of the, the Roman Empire. Uh, and they were about to, they were already beginning to, but they were certainly about to experience some significant persecution uh, for their faith. And so he's trying to prepare them for that. The, the, God is preparing them through his apostle Peter and writing to them significant things that have been so necessary and comforting to the church for 2,000 years because we all suffer. And we will all, if we follow Christ, we will face persecution. Jesus told us that, right? So these are words for us to hear and not just to hear, but to cling to and to hope in. So let me, let me tell you a little bit more, uh, just kind of recapping, you know, where we've, where we've been. We believe Peter probably wrote this letter just before Nero's persecution of the church began in about A.D. 64. Now what Nero, uh, if you're familiar at all with Roman history, you, you might recall that Nero set fire to the city of Rome. Rome burned down, and he blamed the Christians for that, even though he, he was responsible for it. He blamed them. He made them scapegoats. So this is just, is just around the corner uh, for these people. And these words then from Peter, I have to believe, are, are no coincidence. The timing of this is no coincidence. They probably could see it coming in lots of ways. Persecution, again, was being experienced. The writing was on the wall, certainly that it was about to get worse. But I'm also confident that even though they could, they could probably see it coming, it still took them by surprise and how quickly it came and how forcefully it came, more so than they probably ever could have imagined. And that's unfortunately typical with, uh, with suffering and with persecution, right? We can be warned about it. We can be told that it's, it's a part of life. It's to be expected. And yet when it comes, it often blows us off of our feet, right? Because we're not, we're not prepared fully for it. So Peter is aware of that, and he wants them to be as prepared as possible. Certainly, God knows that about his people, and by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gives this letter to them for, this is important, he wants them to have a big view of God. What do you need when you're about to face difficulties and trials and suffering in life? You need a big view of God. And that's really what this letter, and specifically, I think, this passage is about. Remember, he's been trying to give them a biblical worldview, a gospel-centered worldview. He's trying to strengthen their resolve in times of trial. I once heard John Piper say this, wimpy worldviews make wimpy Christians. I think that's, that's a good saying, right? No, we, no wimpy worldviews. We need to have a, a clear biblical worldview so that we aren't wimpy Christians, We've got to digest text like this in our gut so that it can move up to make our hearts grow strong. And so this morning, I, I want to just encourage you, we're going to walk through the details of the text in terms of what Peter, how Peter describes 
suffering and, and how it will occur. But, but, but there's a big picture, there's a big God uh, looming over this text that I want to move us to as, after we've talked about the details and land the plane there. Again, to, to, res, to strengthen our resolve, to encourage you with the bigness and the goodness of your God. So with that in mind, let's read the text together. Again, chapter 4 of 1 Peter, starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Again, I want to start with the details of Christian suffering, and then we'll move on to the big things about God revealed in this text. Here's the, the first part of the important details of Christian suffering. Firstly, this Christian suffering is to be expected. It is to be expected. He makes that explicitly clear here again in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is, a, I think, a startling claim, right? Persecution should come as no surprise to us. That is a startling claim. It's hard to hear something like that. It's definitely counterintuitive think, thinking to us, as 21st century Western readers, because we just, we happen to sort of view suffering and hard times to be abnormal, right? That is an abnormal state of life. There are things to be avoided and things to be dealt with expeditiously so that what? We can get back to normal life. Have you, uh, have you heard anybody talk like that in the last two years, right? We just got to get back to normal life. What is normal life? Peter would say normal life is suffering. Normal life includes trials and hardships. We're to expect specifically as Christians that this will be true because, again, we're the bearers of the gospel. We're the representatives of Christ and his gospel, and the gospel will be offensive in the world because of what the gospel represents. And so persecution towards those who live and proclaim it Peter says, and he said it many times already, should be expected. You shouldn't be shocked when it happens. You shouldn't be caught off guard by this as if something strange were happening to you. Clearly, evil and sin targeted the perfect human being, Jesus Christ, right? And so those of us who follow him, again, shouldn't be surprised when we find ourselves targets of the same evil attacks. I'll put this up on the screen for you because, again, Jesus said this, uh, or excuse me, Paul said this uh, to, to Timothy. He said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus 
will be persecuted. And then again, Jesus did say something similar to that. He said this. He says, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. This is in Luke 6, verse 26. And he's indicating there, woe to you when when everybody speaks well of you, that if you receive that kind of universal acclaim from sinners, there's probably some compromise in your life. In Peter's day, you could not be an uncompromising Christian without sticking out in society. You couldn't do it. Christian values were so radically different from the secular values of the first century world that they were living in, this Gentile Roman world. You couldn't be an uncompromising Christian without sticking out. And I wonder if we've sort of lost some sense of that understanding as Christians because we've lived most of our lives in this sort of Judeo-Christian modern West. But I, I, I think in more recent years, it's becoming clearer that it, it's, it's getting to be similar, right? These days are of, of sort of, uh, of easy believism are coming to an end, and I think more quickly. Culture is changing, right? Our culture is changing. It's looking more like the first century culture than ever before. So, I, in fact, I hope this is true in the sense that, that we can't be uh, under-the-radar Christians, without some kind of compromise, right? We should stick out in the world as well. The values of our society, greed, independence, pluralism, divisiveness, the the sexual uh, licentiousness and and confusion that surrounds us, it's just becoming harder and harder to not not stick out like a sore thumb if you stand uh, for what's biblically true, right? So if this verse was applicable to Peter's readers, it's applicable to us. If we live as uncompromising Christians, persecution will inevitably come. And so he's saying, when it does, don't be surprised. Don't don't be caught off guard like you can't understand why it's happening. You should be prepared. That's one cause of suffering for Christ in this world. But we're given another clue here as to the purpose of Christian suffering. He says here it's to test you. We've seen that word come up in chapter 1 before. The word fiery trial here, it's one word in Greek. Although here it depicts a painful persecution, it's also used other times in Scripture to describe, like in chapter 1, a furnace that's melting down metal to purge it of its impurities, right? To test you, to purify you. This kind of testing through persecution, we're told, is used to prove the genuine nature of faith. Now get this, because this is kind of a strange thing to consider. If that's true, if, if, if it's used, God has a purpose in it to purify his people, consider this sort of conundrum. It comes from the evil of sinful humanity. They persecute because they hate. But somehow, that same persecution and suffering also serves the purpose of a holy God for his people. I I want you to kind of just chew on that for a little bit because there's some significance there. That, That has massive implications. So hold that thought. We'll come back to it in a few minutes. He's going to develop it more in the next few verses. 
but we need to get there first. Let's try to continue first understanding that suffering as a Christian is to be expected. And then secondly, Christian suffering is cause for rejoicing. Look at verses 13 and 14 again. He says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, if the idea that Christian suffering is to be expected was a startling claim, this one would be even, I think, more startling for us in modern Western uh, thought because this is really countercultural. To be blessed when I'm persecuted, to rejoice when I'm oppressed, that sounds absurd. How do you put those two things, suffering and rejoicing, in the same sentence? But listen, that's not just the words of Peter. They're the words of God, which Jesus himself spoke in Peter's presence back in Luke chapter 6. I'll put this on the screen. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. I want you to notice the reason that Jesus gives here for having joy in the midst of suffering. He says, because your reward in heaven will be great. Which is, I think, what Peter also means here when he says that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So when we share in the sufferings of Christ, which, by the way, doesn't mean in a, in a redemptive or spiritual sense here, but, but, but literally sharing in the same kinds of physical sufferings that he endured, when we share in that because we're walking with him, because we're doing what is right, we're, we're uh, representing the gospel, we are blessed eternally in heaven. You say, how? What does that mean? Well, first, let's be clear what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you're, you're, you're going to enjoy suffering, all right? It doesn't mean that you should pursue suffering, like going out on the weekends looking, looking to be persecuted for kicks. It doesn't mean that, right? But the fact that we share in the sufferings of Christ should, should act as evidence of the gospel's work in our lives, right? If the gospel is at work in us, if, if we're being transformed, if we're becoming more and more like Christ, and therefore we're being persecuted because we are countercultural because of the name of Christ, remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that, that reality should give us a sense of assurance that we are citizens of the kingdom, that we have, our eyes have been opened to and we're living in accordance with ultimate reality. That assures us that we belong to Jesus and that is what is cause for rejoicing. If I am assured that, that I, I, I belong to him, I'm living for him because I'm sharing in his sufferings, I can rejoice. What greater thing could I know than I belong to Jesus? I'm one of his I've really been transformed. My life is looking like Christ. That's cause for rejoicing. And our future glory will bring a joy that no amount of earthly suffering can ever diminish. 
so we can rejoice because not only do we belong to him, but because we know that what's coming is far better. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And again, that same suffering is also the proof that tells me that I'm a recipient of his glory. Do you see that? That's why he says we can rejoice. We can be glad when suffering comes upon us. So if it tells me that I'm on the path to future glory, there is a tremendous benefit. There's a tremendous motivation for me here, even though admittedly it may be a delayed one. There's another reason, however, to rejoice in suffering that's not just a future realized blessing, but a very present, presently realized one as well. And it's found again in verse 14. Look back there again. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That is present tense language, right? The blessing of Christian suffering is not found in the actual suffering itself, but in the fact that in those times, God is with you. The Spirit of God and His glory actually rests on you. And that Spirit of glory, that phrase there, it harkens back to the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament, where the presence of the Lord literally dwelt among His people for comfort, for protection, and for power. And Peter reminds us that as believers, we always have his presence, his indwelling in us. And specifically, powerfully, in times of suffering, because we've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been given the Spirit as a deposit. He resides in each and every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ and is with us at all times for this same ministry, comfort, protection, and power. And yet he says here, when you suffer, somehow that pours out all the more. That comfort, that protection, that power, that encouragement comes out all the more. So I wonder if, if you experience suffering, do you, do you have a tendency to think that God has abandoned you during those times? That God is somehow distant from you in times of trial and suffering? What Peter wants you to know is, no, the opposite is true. The opposite is true. These are times of powerful experiences of the presence and the ministry of God in our lives. What a blessing, he says. What cause for rejoicing. So we see Christian suffering is both to be expected, and it also should be viewed as an opportunity for rejoicing, for celebration, Thirdly, he adds this, Christian suffering should never be deserved. Look at verses 15 and 16 again. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now this almost seems like an aside for Peter but it's an important point to be made nonetheless. He just said, look, you should expect suffering. You can rejoice in suffering. But then he comes in and says, but don't deserve the suffering for being something other than Christ-like, right? Don't, don't, be, don't, don't deserve suffering because you're a murderer or a thief or a meddler. In other words, he's saying not all suffering is unjust. 
Not all suffering is undeserved. There's, there's, there's an appropriate nature of certain kinds of sufferings, which are not the result of being an idiot, right? And then there are things that are just a result of being a jerk. And so he's just making this simple case here. You can't rightfully claim to be suffering as a Christian if you did something that deserves to be punished. You remember we looked at, uh, in, you know, chapter 3 in the beginning of 4, and we're talking about, as Christians, our posture towards uh, authority, our posture specifically towards the government, that we're not to be resisting them, but we're to submit ourselves. We're to do good in the world. So he's saying, look, if you're not doing that, but you're being a, a, a meddler or a criminal, don't claim the name of Jesus and wave that flag, wave that suffering card as, for being suffering as a Christian, because frankly, you're just suffering because you're a criminal, or you're suffering because you're a jerk, right? He wants to make that clear. Now, that might seem fairly obvious to most people, but the fact that he mentions it here may indicate that he was addressing a specific problem that existed within at least some of the churches or some of the readers within those churches. Maybe some of them were actually being punished for wrong actions done in the name of Christ. We're not told what they might have been, but we can infer from events in our own day that at least some of the, the kinds of attitudes that may exist that would cause them to suffer, um, again, not necessarily for Christ, but because they're just being rabble-rousers. You think of like uh, the, the, the person who has a pro-life stance, which is a good thing, right? But would then stand in front of an abortion clinic, clinic and bomb it. Now you're just a criminal, right? So we can, we can at least think of examples like that. Maybe some kind of a Robin Hood style stealing from the rich to pay the poor mentality, something like that. His point here is that these kinds of actions don't have a legitimate gospel purpose. And therefore, they deserve to be punished to the extent that they've actually broken the law. And again, don't claim Christian suffering if that's what you're doing. I do think that the term meddler here is something that we should pay specific attention to. Because it's one thing to say, yes, murder and thievery, the, those are clearly, uh, those are against the law. That's, that's bad behavior, right? But this idea of, of being a meddler, he adds that in here. It seems ra- relatively minor in comparison to murder and stealing and evildoing. And it's kind of unique here in the New Testament. It's only used here. It literally means this, one who meddles in things alien to his calling. So you're an agitator. You're a troublemaker. Again, you're, not, you're just not living in light of the gospel. You've got some other agenda. Now, he might have been specifically referring to some kind of political activism or civil agitation, some kind of disruptive or illegal activity that, again, interferes with the smooth functioning of society and government. Not submitting to those earthly authorities, saying, again, it's wrong for you if you suffer persecution because of that to claim the suffering as a Christian card. I think we need to hear that. In other words, to step outside of the faith and to bring trouble, hostility, resentment, or persecution, again, you have no right to expect relief from the Holy Spirit if you're doing that than if you were a murderer. I think that's what he's saying here. And I include that this morning because I think it might provide some food for thought for those of us who live in 
an evangelical culture that tends to be pretty politically active, right? There's just some food for thought here, things that we might need to take heed of. By the way, another point of interest in these verses is the use of the term Christian. If you suffer as a Christian, he says, you are blessed. At this point in time, the word Christian was not a term that the church used to describe themselves like we do today, but in fact, it was a derogatory term used by the persecutors to describe Christians. You're a Christian. It was, a, it was, like, it was, it was meant to be an insult. And so he says, if, if, if the insult that you're receiving is that you're a follower of Jesus, <laughs> rejoice. They see it. You're a follower of Jesus. Suffering in that name is an honor not a curse. Next thing he brings up, Christian suffering serves a purpose in God's judgment plan. Right? So it's to be expected. You can rejoice in it. Don't deserve it for being something other than a Christian. And now, it also serves a purpose, this suffering, in God's judgment plan. Verse 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now we're starting to get into the bigger theological picture that Peter is trying to paint here. This is where the the gospel-centered perspective that we've been talking about over the past several weeks begins to shape our understanding of this text. Peter's been encouraging his readers here in chapter 4 to ask, what's happening in the world, right? What's going on? Why is this happening? Why is there suffering? Why are we being persecuted? And he's saying, when you ask those questions, again, look for gospel-centered answers to those questions. Look for the ultimate uh, purpose in God's redemptive plan as you think about those questions. And here he gives them a major answer to those questions. He explains that the fiery trial of verse 12 is really a fire of judgment from God. The picture is that God has begun to judge the world from within the church, starting with us. And then he will later move outward to judge those who are outside of the church. Now, the Greek word used for judgment, krima, does not necessarily mean condemnation. When you think of judgment, you can can immediately think of condemnation. It doesn't always mean that, but it can mean any kind of judgment, any kind of evaluation, evaluating good versus bad, right? And we know that for Christians, Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when he's talking here about this judgment that begins in in the household of God, he's not talking about condemnation. He's talking about a judgment, an evaluation of true Christians that is always exercised in light of the finished work of the cross, right? And yet, it's purifying us. There's a fire involved here that leaves nobody untouched. You're not condemned but you're being tested. 
Through it, we are being purified and strengthened. Through it, sin is being burned away. Through it, trust in God and holiness are being produced. Faith is being tested. Remember again, chapter 1, Peter talks like this. I, I can put this verse up on the screen as well. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is he saying here? He's saying God is purifying his church. God is separating the wheat from the chaff in the church. The interesting thing about his use of the phrase, judgment begins with the household of God, is that there are major Old Testament allusions here. Two specific passages, in fact, that help us understand what it is that Peter is getting at. The first comes from Ezekiel chapter 9, which pictures the Lord calling these angelic executioners of judgment to draw near to bring judgment on Jerusalem for its sins. One messenger in the passage is told, put a mark on the foreheads of all those who sigh and groan over the sins of Jerusalem, all those who are, who are saddened by Jerusalem's sin, who, who are repentant, who cry out about it. Put a mark on their foreheads and then go through and those who don't have that mark put to death. Judge them. It's a pretty gruesome scene. But what's of note is that God tells the executioners here, begin from my sanctuary and move out. And so Ezekiel adds, so they began with the elders who were inside the house. These are the same words that Peter uses here to say that it's time for the judgment to begin with the house of God. What's also interesting about this is the fact that in Ezekiel, the judgment begins with the elders who are in God's house. And if you notice in the next section of Peter's letter, we're going to get into chapter 5 next week, where does he start? He says, therefore, I what? I exhort the elders among you. So I think we have cause to think that Peter was thinking of Ezekiel 9 as he wrote these words, indicating again, God's judgment will begin with the house of God to purify it, and then it will spread out to destroy all unbelievers. The other Old Testament passage that strikes similar is in Malachi chapter 3, primarily because of Peter's mention of the fiery trial or the refining fire, which again doesn't destroy the people of God, it purifies them. In Malachi 3, it talks about the Lord suddenly coming to his temple as the messenger of the covenant who's like a refiner's fire. And Malachi says, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver like launderer's soap. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them as gold and silver until they present righteous offerings to the Lord. He's going to make them holy. And then once he's purified his people, the Lord again passes on to judge the wicked. So we see this theme occurring over and over in Scripture. Now Peter's repeating it. There's a mental picture that I get here. What is God doing? I get this idea of sort of like a volcano. You know, there's a volcano that sort of erupts right here in the middle of the church. 
And as the lava begins to flow out, that purifying fire is, for us as the believers in the household of God, it's refining us. It's, again, it's burning away our impurities. It's making us more like Christ. He is judging us for our good, right? But then as that lava flows out of the sanctuary and into the streets and out into the community where the non-believers live and dwell, that fire consumes. God will destroy and judge the wicked. That brings us back to verses 17 and 18. The application for us here is that the Lord is already in the midst of his new temple. He's, he's here with his people. And therefore, we should not be surprised because he's here. That refining fire is among us that we're going to feel it. We're going to suffer. He's doing something. Again, it's for our good, but it's sometimes painful. We need to be purified of all iniquity in order to avoid the more painful discipline of his fire of judgment for the non-believer. The fire of the Lord is so intense that even believers are going to feel the pain of its burn. Though we escape the destruction of its consuming fire, we'll still feel it. Because that's how holy God is. And the world again will not escape. So with this in mind, verse 19 seems very apropos. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Last point in the details of Christian suffering is that Christian suffering produces trust in our faithful creator and it produces righteous living. Certainly the idea here is that we can trust in a faithful God to sort out all of humanity. How does he separate the wheat from the chaff? He, he, he's sufficient to sort it out. He knows who belongs to him and who has rejected the gospel. And he alone has the authority to judge all people justly. And he's always just. There's no human authority or government that will ever pass final judgment on you, Christian. In the end... Their judgments are irrelevant. There's one judge who matters. So what do we do if we have that knowledge? We simply trust in him. We trust in him. We trust in his ultimate plan of redemption, knowing that he is faithful, knowing that he is all-powerful. He is the creator. We believe wholeheartedly that his plan will come to pass. And as we trust, we allow the purifying purposes of God's refining fire to do their intended work in our lives by responding to that purifying power in the way that we live, by doing good, by living righteously, by following Christ, by being done with sin. Remember verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Peter ends this chapter with the same idea in which he began it. This is God's will for you. This is God's will for us. This is why we suffer. There's a gospel purpose in all of it. 
It sanctifies us. It prepares us for the redemptive promises of God to be fulfilled. And we can trust in his power and in his faithfulness to do what he says he's going to do. By that, you will see ultimate reality. By that, you will see the kingdom of God. Those are the details that Peter wants us to understand. Again, this is normal. This will be expected. You can even rejoice in it. Not because you deserve it, because God is doing something in it to purify his people and, yes, judge the world. Now, before we close our time in this passage, I think it's important to take a step back and look at how all these pieces work together to paint this bigger picture. Because I, I said earlier, there's something here that tells us about a big God. So I want to close with this, the big picture of God's sovereignty. This text has something big to tell us because it's, it's big because it's important. It's big because it speaks to the issue of suffering, and it speaks loudest to people who are about to endure that suffering. It's big because God is big, and that's what this message wants us to convey. God is big. So here's the big idea. You've seen Christian suffering is to be expected, rejoiced in, experienced only for righteous gospel purposes, and that it's God's judgment plan for the world. It begins with the church, and it moves out. If you're tracking with all that, you might have picked up on a dilemma in all this. Sort of a mixed message here, and here it is. On the one hand, we're told we're going to, be, we're going to suffer because we're persecuted by non-believers who, because they hate Jesus, they will hate his people because they represent Jesus. And it's their fault they're accountable for that wickedness. They, they are the ones who commit the evil acts. They are the ones who are sinning against God and rejecting him and persecuting the people of God. It's their fault. Yet on the other hand, we clearly read that this same suffering is ultimately from God. It's his means of testing our faith. It's his means of refining us of our impurities and preparing us for his kingdom. In other words, it is his will. It's directed by his love, and in all of that, it's good. It's evil. It's good. It's at the hands of sinful men. It's from the hand of God. That's a dilemma, right? How do you put those two ideas together? And have them both be true. Scripture tells us that they're both true. And therein lies the big idea. The reason Peter says here, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that is upon you, is not because he simply saw the political and the social signs coming, and now he's saying, look, you should have seen this coming too. It's not, that's, not, that's not it. He's saying, you shouldn't be surprised by this, because God is the one who has purposed this in your lives for his glory. He ordained it all. His redemptive plan has always operated in this way. Bringing about redemption through suffering. It's always operated in this way since the beginning. 
God does not react to the actions of sinful human beings like a chess player who's just trying to like match the moves of the evil people. Nor does he try to rearrange and redirect chaos to somehow work it out for good. He's not reactive. There is no chaos with God. He actually purposes all things. He's sovereign. Even the acts of sinful people to accomplish his ultimate plan, and he's sovereign over all of it. Nothing happens that God does not ordain for his glory and for our good. Now, if you're thinking, wait a minute, are you saying that God is accomplishing his will in our lives through the acts of evil people? I would say with some explanation, that's actually what the Bible teaches us. You would say then, well, does that mean he's responsible for evil? Is God responsible for evil? No. Evil people are responsible for their evil actions. That's also something the Bible is clear about. But what it's telling us is that God is not, again, simply reactive to that evil. He's sovereign over it, allowing and directing it for his purposes. These are hard truths to grapple with. But there's one place we can look that demonstrates this for us most clearly. We just have to look to the cross of Christ. It's there that we see Jesus was indeed crucified by sinful people as an act of sinful rebellion against God. They are the ones who, 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 who brought him in and tried him in an unjust court. They're the ones who cried, crucify him. They're the ones who, according to Peter himself, said they crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. He says that in Acts 2. It was their fault. And yet in that same sentence in Acts 2, when Peter says, they crucified him, they killed him, that was done by the hands of lawless men, he adds this, and this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So if God isn't sovereign over the acts of sinful people, ordaining them for his redemptive purposes, then the gospel wasn't God's plan from the beginning. And if the gospel wasn't God's plan from the beginning, then we don't have a gospel. What's the point of all this? The point is to see, listen, when the day of trouble comes, and it will, if you're following Christ Jesus, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. When it comes, you've got you've to evaluate what's happening. And there's two possible ways to evaluate what's happening. You can be surprised because you're not sure if God is in this thing. Where is God in the midst of all this chaos and suffering that I'm experiencing? Where is God in this persecution? You could be surprised, and you can doubt his presence and his purpose in all of that. Or you can see that all things are and can only be ordained by God to accomplish his ultimate plan of redemptive grace in the world. And by that knowledge, 
have your entire understanding of what's happening, your entire worldview be redirected by a very big view of a very big God. A God who's sovereign. A God who knows exactly what he's doing in your suffering and that it's going to result in your purification. It's going to result in your glory. It's going to result in your Christ-likeness. God will be with you. And God will cause you to rejoice as he works it all out according to his loving plan. That is a strong theology. And that's what we need to not fall away and shrink back and be crushed and dismayed in this life because persecutions are coming. Suffering is real. But ah, God is sovereign. God is for me. God has a purpose in this. That's a thoroughly biblical theology. That is not wimpy theology. And it will not make for wimpy Christians in the day of trial and persecution. That's God's ultimate plan for his people in their sufferings. The details are important. It's expected. You can rejoice in it. Don't, don't, don't deserve it, right? The details are important, but the big picture is the point. God is not just with us in our sufferings. He's working all things for his glory and our good through them. Ah, that's a good word. That's a good word. We simply need to entrust ourselves to our faithful, sovereign creator by continuing to do good and to wait eagerly and expectantly for the joy that will be ours at the full revelation of his, of his glory on that day. Amen? So, Father, help us to believe that. Lord, I, I fear that, that we've, we've lost sight of the bigness of our God. So, Lord, thank you this morning for a glimpse into this passage and to be reminded, Lord, that we can, we can trust you. You are faithful. You are in control of everything. And, Lord, you are for us. Thank you that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, even as we know, Lord, you've come to judge the world. Lord, thank you for the, the hopeful confidence that we have to endure difficulties in life. So, Lord, yes, protect us from feeble-mindedness. Protect us from victim mentality. Protect us, Lord, from wanting to crawl into a ball and, and to hide away from this life. You've called us to live it confidently and boldly for you, even though it's not easy even though it's full of hardships and dangers, Lord, you've called us to cling to you and to walk forward and to set our sights at what's at the top of that escalator. Jesus is there. God's glory is there. His promises will be fulfilled so we can endure. Help us to endure. Thank you for your word. 
We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.